Hello, ski racing fans, and welcome to the American Downhiller podcast presented by SkiRacing.com. Episode number four, titled The Sasslong with Booksy. I'm Doug Lewis, and together with world championship medalist AJ Kitt, Honeycomb winner Darren Rawls, and World Cup winner Marco Sullivan. This week, we are talking about the most fun downhill on the circuit with the craziest terrain for sure, Val Gardena's The Sasslong. But we have a special guest. He's from Liechtenstein, had 268 World Cup starts, won the silver medal in GS at the 99 Worlds, and is a six-time Olympian. That blows my mind. And he won Val Gardena downhill in 2005. Please welcome Marco Buchel. Marco, where are you and what did you do today? Well, I am, unfortunately, I have to say I'm in Germany. I commentated the men's and the women's races, men's in Val d'Isere, women's in Sestriere. But the TV station ordered me to the main headquarter in Germany. It is pretty flat and there's not a bit of snow. So uh, it is frustrating. But on the other hand, I can, I can commentate the other guys smashing it down the mountain. Let's talk about your career. It is incredible because I think you were coming up when I was skiing and you raced with all of us. So Marco, AJ, and D-Money, talk about what it was like racing against Booksy. Well, I remember the first time that we actually met was at, I think it was like a Noram in Aspen. And you were already, and I was like the young guy and I didn't really know who you were. And you were starting in the back because you, I think you had really good GS points at the time. And uh, you came from like the way, very back to way up on the podium or something. I was just like, you know, to see another Marco was cool. But then I was like, damn, who is this guy? And then I started looking into you, your results and saw that you were like a veteran who's just trying to kind of transition into speed. And uh, the rest is history. I, we raced together quite a bit from, from there on out. But uh, you're, the way you went to the different disciplines throughout your career, I thought it was pretty cool. I don't know that we overlap very much. I mean, yeah, I was a I was a exclusive downhiller by the time you started. I was winding things down. So, uh, but you know, anytime you see a, a racer from Liechtenstein on the on the start sheet, it gets your attention because there's not very many of them. The, the one and only from Liechtenstein, pretty much uh, in that era. Um, <laughs> Marco Books and I, we had a lot of battles in the World Cup. We had we shared the podium. Uh, most notably in Kitzbühel. It was my last season. I got third, he was second. And uh, it was always like fun to be around around you, man. Like you always had a good smile and kind of joking here and there and, and uh, just always got, just brought something more, some more energy, you know, to the tour than, than most other Europeans. And you kind of like, you're almost like another American for us, you know, like, Books is one of those guys, guys that really fit in well with the with us as Americans. Like he was, he brought a lot of good energy to the, the, the tour, joking around, always like smiling and saying hello, and just a great personality to have. And uh, we became great friends. And I mean, I remember you coming out to Truckee, um, riding Harleys around the U.S. and stuff like that. And my last year, I really wanted something that kind of take away just I mean, obviously his experiences everything but uh, being a good friend I asked him for a race suit and uh I got this race suit of Marco's right here which is really sweet you know and uh I try and put it on once in a while it's, it's too big for me but um <laughs> but he's got it all signed right here so this is pretty cool 
<laughs> takeaway that I got from, from Marco um, my World Cup day. So thank you. I appreciate it. Luxi, what a, you know, I always love to hate the Austrians and we had, a, a, you know, relationships with all the teams. What was your relationship with the U.S. team? Um, well, well, basically, my relationship to the U.S. in general goes way back when my mom, she was an au pair before I was born in Chicago. And uh, when I was a little boy, she, uh, I think it was about four years old, she took me over to Chicago and she put me in a kindergarten. And that was my first first impression I got from the U.S. And ever since, there was a huge connection. And, you know, um, the European ski racers are... Let's put it this way. Sometimes a little bit narrow-minded, not free-spirited. They're a little bit uh, intense once in a while. And I always dig the, the atmosphere the U.S. ski team has. They get along with each other so good. And uh, they just let it loose sometimes. They party together as the Europeans never do because right after the race, everybody's getting in their car, driving back home, and we never get to celebrate and I dig that so much. That's why I, I love spending time with the Americans. I want to get into talking about uh, being on a small team. So Mark Giardelli had a, a team of one. He trained with us. Stephen Lee trained with us. What was it like being the only Liechtenstein racer? Who'd you, who'd you train with and how did you get fast being a loner? Well, back in the days when I was young, we had quite, quite a team. We were not the most successful ones, but we were a few and... The one coach I had, which taught me the most and probably taught me some manners as well, that was Marie-Therese Nadik, you know, gold Olympic medalist, 72 in uh, Sapporo. She was my coach when I was young. And AJ, you might know her brother, Theo, uh, yeah. for, for sure. She was my first coach. Um, yes, exactly. So she was my coach for, I think, about six years. And then we had another coach. We were training within the Liechtenstein team up to the Olympics in Lillehammer 94. And afterwards, they re realized we're not enough racers. So they tried to find a deal with the Swiss team. And for 15 years, I was part of the Swiss national ski team. I trained with them, even though I raced for Liechtenstein all these years. I didn't have any Liechtenstein coaches, but I was a complete part of the Swiss team. And in the beginning, I was a GS racer, and I was, and that's a funny thing, I was in a team with Mike from Grünigen, Urs Kalin, Paul Akola, and Steve Loescher. And I was the number nine in the world in GS, but within that team, I was number five. I still had to carry all the guys' bags to the room. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, after I did downhill, I was in the team with Didier Küch. So The veterans made you uh, step up with some rookie uh, detail, huh? Yeah. Even though I was top 10 in the world, yeah, I, still I had know. To do rookie, rookie stuff. <laughs> we always had, we always yeah. had like a rule of like, if, if you're last down or the slowest guy in downhill race day, you got to carry the big finish bag, which yes. a lot of guys would put ski boots in and everything, make it really heavy for the slow guy. Now that, that was you, huh? That number nine yeah, in the world, the slow guy. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to, uh, you know, I remember a standout moment. We were in um, Kranzkagora, and Va yes. Von Grunigan won another GS. And you yeah. and I went out afterwards to party with a few guys. I'm like, where's Von, Von Grunigan? And you're like, he doesn't party. He never comes on, like, for winning? And, like, no, nah, I, mean, I mean, he was used to it, but he was so serious. Like you said, that's where you really separated yourself. 
you're more free spirited, soaking up all those moments like like our team would uh, with something special, you know, for us on the road. But the uh, the Swiss definitely did not partake in any, any of that. And you were kind of like the in a way the the black sheep with the Swiss guys, huh? So <laughs> it was it was the first the first year I got successful in skiing. I realized the whole team is not celebrating. And I thought like, I have to be, I have to be focused and everything. I cannot go on to celebrate. I will celebrate at the end of the season. Not going to happen. It's not the same. So I realized very quickly, you do it right away that evening after the race, you go out, have a couple of beers, just have a good time. You don't have to party too hard, but at least you have to celebrate a little bit. And that's, that's what I, I, I saw at the U.S. ski team. And I totally enjoyed it. You're only yeah. as good as your last race. It's hard to celebrate at the end of the season when uh, the best races were in January. So, Marco, can you talk about the transition from a tech skier, giant slalom, to a speed skier? I wasn't a natural. I did my, I, I have to admit, I did my first downhill races at the World Championships 1991 in Salbach. And um, I wanted to do the 92 Olympics downhill as well uh, i crashed a week prior to that and broke my arm and then i tried to pick it up i did the downhill race in the 94 olympics but then i, I basically got so scared in downhill and i quit and i stuck with gs because i thought well this is good for me i'm a technician a technical skier this is better for me i don't want to be scared like that and so, as you mentioned, I made my medal at the 1999 uh, World Championships in Bale. But the very same season, I thought to myself, I will go to Kitzbühel just to watch the guys race. Because I knew I never raced that race. I will never be a downhill. I just go to Kitzbühel to watch them. And I was down there at the finish area watching one racer after another coming down, and my jaw dropped. I thought to myself, what kind of wimp am I being? Yeah, right. Technically advanced, pretty good and great discipline, giant slalom. But watching these guys, these are heroes. These are gladiators. And also my wife told me that downhillers are sexy. So I thought to myself, well, I have to, I have to dig into that. Having eight, nine, maybe 10 giant slalom races a season is not enough. I need a second discipline. And that's why I, at the end of the season, I did the Swiss National Championships just to get a couple of fist points. The upcoming next season, that's where I met Marco Sullivan the first time because I had bad points and I did the Norm races in Aspen. We went to Beaver Creek, had just a Super G, but no downhill. And the second Super G of the season was Kitzbühel. And my coaches told me, you have to at least do one training. And I was scared as hell just driving into Kitzbühel. And I got to the hotel and I opened up the trunk of my car and I wanted to take out the bags of my car. And Didier Gush came by and he said, you do not unpack your bags in the room because I don't want to pack your bags when you are in hospital. That's how I was greeted. And I, had, I, I did one training, I had the very last bib. And Darren, you might remember, it dumped snow for two days straight afterwards. There was no more training. And then we had the Super G and I had vid number 32 and I finished fourth. 
And I got up on the, uh, in the evening, the, the ceremony, and I, I thought this is addictive. I want more of that. So I decided I do my, I do my first World Cup downhill in Kitzbühel the next day. And true to this, uh, to this day, my very first World Cup downhill was Kitzbühel oh. 2000. And it was a carpet and it was easy and it was slow. And the start was below Mausefalle and I scored World Cup points. Amazing. Pretty good story. <laughs> yeah. Luke, so I remember you always, throughout your whole career, you were really open about the fact that you were kind of scared and downhill. And you, would, during inspection, you would talk about being nervous about certain sections. And I always, I didn't know if you were like trying to get it in our heads or what, but it was, nope. you know, nope. I think it, it was a true, true emotion from you, but you were over, <laughs> you were able to like get in the start gate and overcome that and become you know one of the greatest like how how did you do that how did you overcome that in your head well funny enough the first couple of years though i have to admit i was scared i uh i really have problems but i always thought it's so fascinating i got faster and faster super g it, it, it happened right away first season i did super g at the end of the year i was top 15 in downhill uh, it took me some time and maybe you remember there was a time where the top 30 in training the, were reversed for the race and i was uh coming into lake louise bib number 77 uh, in the training i was 28th and i had bib number three at the race and i uh, finished 16th and same happened in beaver creek and suddenly i was top 30. and this was my slow slow this was my approach to downhill uh, step by step and i still admit the first two maybe three years i was scared but suddenly it clicked i was fighting for the last hundreds of a second suddenly it was like it was like a, a, a Something happened. I, I felt more comfy within a few years. And, and I have to say, I was not always comfortable at the start. And probably all of you know what I'm talking about. Um, I had days, especially in Kitzbühel and Bormio, where I was scared, or at least I was nervous as hell. But, you know, uh, as we all know, it takes a lot of, a lot more courage to go out back doors than front. So Doris, your wife, she said, yeah, downhills are sexy. And that kind of got your attention a little bit. Was that yeah, when you guys were dating or were you married at that point? We were dating. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that's what really drove you to become a downhiller. But you, you have to listen to this. <laughs> I was I was in the game of being a downhiller for a couple of years. And I think in the year 2004 or five, I uh, took her to Kitzbühel and I placed her on the Mausifalle. And I said, honey, here's a perfect spot. Enjoy. And I raced and it took about 30 to 40 minutes after she came down to the finish area, white faced. And she took me by the collar here and she grabbed me. You, why did you do this to me? You are insane. You're crazy. Don't ever do this to me again. So I said, you always wanted a downhill. Now you got one. She got what she wished for. Yeah. yeah. She was scared watching. Hey, Doug Lewis here. And I want to talk about the American Downhiller Speed Camp. American Downhiller is the leader in teaching young ski racers how to go fast and have fun. 2023 will mark the sixth annual American Downhiller Speed Skills Camp in Mammoth Mountain. 
Our Speed Camp is coached exclusively by current and former World Cup racers and coaches who are passionate about helping the next generation of athletes achieve their dreams. We specifically focus on aerodynamics, jumping technique, speed tactics, and the mental training required to safely navigate Super G and downhill race courses. If you are a ski racer who wants to go fast, check out our website, americandownhiller.com, for all specific camp dates. Yeah, I have a question for you. You know, we talk about, talked about your transition to being a downhiller. Um, and, you know, for me, I came in, I, I had no uh, aspirations for anything but being a downhiller. I think a lot of, a lot of skiers are. But talk a little bit about Odermatt. I mean, this is a guy that came in as a, as a tech skier, uh, truly, but I mean, right from the get-go when he starts running speed, he's one of the best in the world. So clearly this is a, a, a ski racer with incredible talent. He's young. Um, you know, the natural, I think the natural progression that we see is, you know, tech skiers that get a little bit long in the tooth and, and for them to preserve their career, they start focusing on, on downhill and speed and, and with the technical background that they have, they end up being pretty good at it. Um, but like, talk a little bit about Odermatt and, and, just, just his trajectory for starters, but then just his body of, of skill ability to, to be able to dominate in almost every discipline. Um, I, I have to say this with in respect for you, AJ and Doc. Uh, downhill back in the days when you were skiing, it was different. Oh, this yeah. were the times where a downhill was a downhill. And then there and me and Marco, we experienced the change of equipment and downhill got more technical through the side cut skis. So the real old school downhillers that come in straight into downhill and always be the guys with a lot of courage and, and just, yeah, true downhillers, these people are rare. Nowadays, you come in from GS because you need the technical ability because of the equipment you have. And it gives you a huge advantage, especially on courses like Beaver Creek or, or probably uh, Quitfield as well. Um, you need to be really good in the technical stuff. It's not courage anymore. It's not who has the biggest, you know, cojones, but who will technically ski good and is also equipped with uh, courage. So a lot of downhillers come in from giant slalom. And if you look at Marco Odermatt, basically it's the same turn he does in GS as in downhill. It's just extended. It's a longer turn, but the same thing applies. The only thing newly you have to learn is the gliding section. And I, you know, it, it's, it's not that difficult. Everybody sooner or later learns how to glide and let his skis run. That's easier to learn than a technical turn. So yeah. basically, you will see more and more tech skiers, at least from GS, coming into downhill. And that's one transition which happened the last one or two decades that downhill still needs courage, but not as much as the time when you guys were skiing. I have to say uh, that that transition in the, in the discipline with the equipment happened right in the last uh, quarter of my career and it was more or less what ended my career because the sport changed so much right with the equipment things got turnier I mean the speeds no. were still up I mean we're, we were still setting records from the start to the finish at places like Kitzbühel but there was two more gates two more turns things like that and and uh, I just was not able to adapt at the at the you know latter part of my career to to uh, how it mm -hmm. changed but so you're absolutely right it, it did change a lot from 
I mean, the days I came in racing in the late eighties on 230 centimeter skis, you didn't need to turn them. You just needed to send them. <laughs> send them. The one, the one who is very, has a lot of courage is fast, you know, make less mistakes. You'll be fast. Nowadays, yeah. a lot of different things are, are playing a role in, in that. I think that's a big factor though, because you know, look at Odermott jumping into his first race in Kitzbühel last year. And I saw him at the start about five guys out after he got the course report from his team. And uh, I was on the little skyway between the Kitzbühel Ski Club, Star House, and the Rebel Energy Station. And he looked up and I just said, let's see it, Marco, and gave him like the horns. And he had this sparkle and this smile in a, you know, from his face. And he was, I mean, like you said, it's, it's great to acknowledge that fear. Everybody's fearful, but if you acknowledge it and you express it, say to Sully here and, and some other guys, like just trying it off your chest, it helps you deal with it. But mm -hmm. I was pretty surprised that Odermott did not have that like fearful look in his eye. He was fired up and ready to go. And what, I mean, Foyt's wins and he gets second. I like that, like what you did too. Your first World Cup downhill, I didn't even know that was on the strife that's crazy by the way i think i think a great word for that is respect i think we all respected the danger of kitzbühel and yes. if you respect it and you and you face it all of a sudden it heightens it did for me it heightens all my senses i saw better i felt better i heard better and uh people who don't respect it will be in the hospital now yep. we're going to transition from kitzbühel dangerous course to i think one of the most fun courses out there val gardena um, Booksy, I'll start with you. Can you describe what it's like to run Val Gardena downhill? It's Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know oh, how yeah. to express it. I, I, I love Val Gardena. Um, you need gliding abilities. You need a lot of fine sensation in, 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 in every turn you do. You need to have, yeah, courage for the first time when you jump over the camels. And you need a lot of technique and precision coming into Chaslat. The timing is essential. And you need to work your bumpers. <laughs> and timing is just the one essential thing. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the whole package. It's, the area is beautiful. The mountains are beautiful. Food is great. People are nice. And you have a course that is different than anything else. It's the package that makes Valgardena unique. And, um, the fun thing is, if we have a rookie coming into Valgardena, and I, I had to go through the same thing, while you inspect the camel jumps for the first time, there's always, always somebody who asks you for your mileage card from your airline because he tells you you get extra mileage here on your card. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's an incredible place to go to for the first time. And I think Disneyland's a great way to express it because I mean, the, the camels is like nothing that, that you've ever imagined. I mean, you can watch it on television, but until you inspect and you see the world just disappear over the first camel and you have no idea what to expect. And you're like, I got to run this. And I know that I got to land perfect. And then I got to pop. I have no, you know, no interest in that. But man, is it so much fun because the first time you do it and you land it, it's just a perfect little glide. And God, yeah, it's amazing. It's such a fun, uh, a fun sensation at that speed. And to know that, you know, you get to, you get to charge and do that. It's a, uh, it's a great adrenaline rush. And then, yeah, coming into Shazlot and all that terrain that you have to ski. I mean, this is a, 
one of the most challenging technical sections I've ever skied. So yeah, it's a it's an incredible rush to get to the bottom of that course. You just want to go do it again. Once you once you come for the first time, you come down the wall and you glide towards the camel jumps, and your mind goes, "Am I really doing this? <laughs> God damn it! Holy <laughs> together!" And you yeah. do the first roll and you get ready and you go like ah. And once you're in the air, you realize you have everything under control and you see the last roll and you know you're going to clear it. It's all, yeah, this is great. <laughs> yeah. So much fun. That is the highlight. That's the one that stands out. But like, it starts from the top. There's so much fun top to bottom on this track. And um, you're that right footer, the first turn, you drop down, get a good compression. You're kind of get light. You switch up in the air. Another right footer off that jump. I think uh, Ailey Lewis and I counted how many times we're in the air. It was like 26 times in Valgardena. Just, you know, just even little poppers, but some big, you know, obviously the big jumps, but it's rowdy. And it's like a little supercross track at, at big speed. So I loved it as well. And, and um, back in the day when I first started, it was more intimidating because of how narrow it was. Remember how like closed in it was at the Mauer? Yeah. And I was thinking about yeah. the camels all the way down my first run, training run, and I almost slammed the fence off the mower because my direction was wrong. <laughs> and I felt like I was gonna blow this, like I didn't have the speed, so I almost stood up and, and hit the brakes before the, the camels. And then I'm like, same thing what you said, <laughs> Books, it's like, what am I made of, let's go. And uh, just wrapped up again and just had to pop a little harder and, and made it, you know, just a little, little doubt was erased after that, but it's a tough one to face as a downhill your first time and there's been a lot of like nasty crashes and some some big injuries on that one too so that kind of like elevates that that uh the factor of of um you know just the scare factor i guess this week we are proud to welcome the adl ski club as a new supporter to this season's podcast the adl has members all over the country and are huge fans of the world cup and big supporters of the american downhillers their dream trips go to Kitzbühel, Wengen, the Dolomites, and Japan for Japal. But this month, they are supporting the American Downhillers with an online auction to help raise money for the Men's Speed Team Coaches Mentorship Fund, and they need your help. The aim of the fund is to bring back experienced coaches and athletes to pass along their valuable insight, experience, and support to the new generation of coaches. This year's funds go to get Forrest Carey, Dane Spencer, and our own Marco Sullivan back coaching our best. For all information on supporting this fund, go to adlskiclub.com slash fundraiser. That's adlskiclub.com slash fundraiser. You can bet on all kinds of great U.S. ski team gear with race suits available from Steven Nyman, Jared Goldberg, and Tommy Ford, as well as official U.S. ski team clothing. All items are 100% tax deductible and will go exclusively to the fund. The ADL and Coach Scotty Venus, thank you for your support. That's just one of the one of the sections we're not allowed to do a mistake. After the first roll, don't screw it up. You can make, you can make lots of mistakes uh, on the whole course. So many places, it doesn't matter if you make a mistake. But coming into the second roll where you lift off, you do one mistake. Ouch. Game over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're talking about course reports before too, and trusting your coaches and just kind of knowing the feedback that you get right and I was standing on the side of the race hill my first year was just I did inspection I was gonna race the super g and Pepe Strobel was one of the first racers and he 
popped the camel. And mm-hmm. he went about another 80 feet past the landing, huge jump. And they rated it up to the team. I remember Craig Thrasher getting this, this message, like it, the speeds are really fast, air is big. So you could almost like suck it up today. I mean, just a little stiff leg. And he ended up doing too much and smacked on the, on the, um, cased it basically the, the landing. Yeah. And he blew both knees that day, you know? So that was like before I even raced it, raced, uh, Val Gardena, I think seeing those one from a massive jump to like the same race, like some guy coming short and, um, who was it? Was, uh, was it Spindall or one of the Norwegians that had like a pretty crazy crash up that one year? I did like a 180, landed backwards on his back. I know that uh, one of them was Sylvan Zurbricken. He had a bad crash. Stefan Stankala. And also uh, David Poisson. Poisson. That was a bad one. In my era, I saw Anton Steiner. I think he blew out both knees as well. Because he was, when I race, um, I went around him the first couple of years. That was my era. You had to either be a you know, Uli Spies, who did a, a shot of schnapps in the starting <laughs> gates and then ran, which was crazy, or a couple oh, of Austrians. Yeah, yeah he would, he, and you do the, the shot of schnapps and run, run this course. It was crazy. Those crashes were legendary, and, it, and we all said it. You have to commit in the starting gate that you're going to jump them, and you got to block it out. But I was like, Darren, the first time I did it, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to jump the camel bumps. Every gate, I was jump the camel bumps, jump the camel bumps, and it didn't go well. But I, I cleared them. It wasn't pretty, but boy, is that a a mind f- that you are trying to put it out of your mind, but it will not leave. That's all you're thinking. You have to admit, after your time, it got a little bit easier because they moved the third row a little bit closer and they narrowed it down a little bit. So clearing bump or roll number three nowadays is easier. My first time inspecting Giardelli, who was legendary and had maybe four globes to his name already, he was inspecting the line that goes around the jumps. And I thought to myself, here I am, a rookie, 18 years old, and I'm inspecting the jumping. So... But I, I think that, um, yeah, the, there was another bad crash uh, in our era, uh, Books, that uh, Piantanita, remember the Italian? Yes. He was, he had a very bad crash there. And I think after that, they moved him closer. So he was airlifted out. And I think he was yes. revived on the again. hill. Yeah. So, but he was never seen again on the course. No. <laughs> who was the first guy that doubled it? Anybody know who the first guy was? That Uli Spies. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, so Uli was. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like throwing back the, the schnapps at the start. Yes. The other, I had some real characters when I raced. The Austrians were up there. Erwin Resch, remember that dude or heard his name? He was smoking cigarettes in the Sunday. <laughs> I'm like, are we at a ski race here or a bar? Like the guy was, was just smoking cigarettes. We had more characters back then. I want to finish this. We've talked about the top. We've talked about the looping, the jumps, the mower. Uh, Marco, talk us about that that finish shoot. It seems like you hyperspace and you know you round that corner. Talk about what it's like to to do that last fifteen seconds. Ah, the last fifteen seconds when you have uh, cleared the section just left. Basically, it's a huge relief, or you're angry because you didn't nail it. <laughs> basically, when you nailed it, you're totally happy you did 
And the only thing you do is you look for the fast line just to take the last bit of speed because first of all, you get on a flat part with a couple of rolls and you do the right, uh, the left foot turn to the right side, there's another jump and then you turn around and it gets dark because it's a lot of shadow. The terrain is falling down to the left side and you see the finish area down there at the bottom. The only thing you, the thing you, you, uh, you do is you make yourself as small as possible, as small as possible. You go down, you tuck down, make yourself as small as possible and you do clear the last jump, which has gone, it has become bigger than a couple of years ago. And then you land, you try to break down in that shadow, cold, dark finish area and you turn around and I experienced a couple of times uh, pretty good results there. So I always like slow down, <laughs> slowing down in the finish area. How about you guys? Yeah, that's a fast section. I mean, you, you just start to accelerate and you can hear it. I mean, your skis start to whistle, right? You yeah. set that, that left edge and it feels like you're still going the speed of, you know, what you're in in Shaw's lot, which is really turny and slow. But man, it's just, it's like somebody turned on the afterburners and you hear the skis start to go, you know, and you accelerate and come whipping around that corner until to where you point them a little bit straight and you got a roller and, you know, it's, it's exciting. That's really that course that the, you start having a lot of fun in the first mm -hmm. six or eight seconds and the fun doesn't quit until you cross the finish line. I'm going to set up uh, Marco Sullivan and we can all talk about this, but this is the most terrain laden course out there. And Marco, did terrain come naturally to you or is it something you struggled with and how did you learn it? And I'd love to look, to go around the circle here about just talking about terrain. I think uh, for me, I mean, like everyone on, on this podcast, I loved Valgardena and uh, the terrain piece was for me growing up uh, in Tahoe, a place where there was you know, tons of free skiing, powder skiing, cliff jumping. It was that course just related to my skill my natural skills so nicely because you could just work all the little jumps and go as fast as possible and not be scared you know there wasn't a lot of risk like we were saying there obviously there is risk like on the camels and in different sections but you could just pretty much go full throttle the whole way and i felt like because of my background of, of a ton of free skiing as a kid that i had those skills and um there was never it's a question mark of like going full throttle at Vagardani. It's just a place where you went as fast as you could. And, and like Booksy said, usually turned around the finish and had a pretty good result and always smiling. And the rest of the team also usually did pretty well. So it was just a, a really good vibe. AJ, growing up on, you know, such terrain in mid-state New York, where did your love of terrain or your feel come from? Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't like like Marco and Darren growing up in it, but um, I think just you know whatever the uh, the, th the thing with me was that um, appeal to downhill was kind of the you know the same thing. I just really loved the um, I don't know the the roller coaster, the 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 amusement parks uh, aspect of ski racing, and that's what uh, made downhill so interesting and fun to me. The challenge of, of working the terrain was, I think, was something that was fun to figure out, you know, how to, how to open up before and, and press and press on the backside of something. I had, a, I had a, a coach when I was a when I was a young kid 
talking about gliding and he's like, you always have to press on the backside of every ripple and every roll. And, you know, you equate that to the larger rolls like the camels or the, the big terrain you see in, uh, in Shah's lot. And I just translated it, uh, you know, the smaller stuff to the bigger stuff. And it was a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun to, to stay connected to the snow when you can. Uh, Darren, can you describe what it's like not to hit the Cheslot well? <laughs> uh, yeah, like, well, it's it's like, yeah, you're when you mess up going on the Cheslot, it all starts uh, entering it. And hopefully you give it just enough where you make a nice double and you land on the backside. But if you come up short, you're going to skip. If you go too long, you're really hustling to get back on the line. And that's kind of the critical start for that whole section. And I'd say guys with like longer legs, you know, where you see like Nyman uh, from the American side and, and um, Bryce Bennett, those guys have an advantage to really kind of reach out and suck back up, you know, even if they do get off of off the line a little bit. So they have an advantage, but like being a smaller guy with like shorter legs, it was, had to be really precise and, and on top of uh, my game through there. But it was like everybody's saying right here, trains the most fun to ski um it just there's an element of like being challenged with jumps and rollers through on the edge and that just always like attracted me to skiing and that's why i like downhill more because you're skiing the mountain you're not just skiing a course but it was uh when you nailed that it was so fun and that was like my probably my biggest focus was on that course to try and be you know as clean and smooth and hit the rhythm section there as well as possible to the charge lot and and then, like Book said, when you exit it, it's either like, damn it, I just blew it, or, or like, come on, baby, let's see what I got to the finish line. And one thing I want to bring up, though, too, is it's crazy. I remember, like, top 30 guys being within 1.28 seconds. Like, what is it where so many people are so stacked, so many racers are so stacked, on a course like that, it's very challenging. Also, the guys come from the back. Like Books, you mentioned um, Marcus Foser, you know, uh, winning with bid number 66. That's not very uncommon, I think, in the history through Valgardena, where a late bib has at least been on the podium. Uh, so uh, we all know, you all know the big mountain behind the camel jumps when you see the big mountain, which is very scenic. And we all know if you start early, you have sunlight on the top flats. Right after start, you got sunlight up there but as soon as you hit Cheslot, it's all in the dark and it's shadow late numbers on top there was shadow with a little bit of tailwind and Cheslot was in the sun that made it easier so this is why high numbers always had a big huge chance to make great results but now they skip the uh starting time i think they start a half an hour earlier or even a, one hour earlier they 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 change the starting time to avoid that number 60 wins again. Uh, but basically it's always a, a great chance in, in Vagardena to, to have good results. And my theory about, about the, the, the narrow margins within first and 30th or the ties, you have, uh, you have not so many huge technically difficult sections. From top down to Cheslat, everybody can ski that perfectly good. A little bit better here, a little bit worse here. Um, but most of the racers, if they know how to glide and have the right equipment, they're all within one second coming to Cheslat. 
So you have 60 to 70 racers at the start and you have 60 to 70 racers arriving at Cheslav within one second. And then it spreads between the guys who hit it right or the ones who don't. And at least 30 of them plus maybe 40 of them hit it pretty good. And the ones top guys who probably don't nail it as good still make a difference. So this is why in the end, about 30 racers are within one and a half, maybe maximum two seconds. So this is my theory. I back that up. I was listening to Sullivan with the terrain as a young kid. I think that applies to me as well. I was really bad when I was a young skier because I skipped ski club training the whole time. I was skiing terrain with my bodies, jumping every yeah. little thing there was. And, and my results in, 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 in the races were not good, but I was out there having fun. So afterwards, when I, I came to Volga Day and I, the terrain just came natural to me. Good point for sure. I mean, we would always blow off training for a good pow day and you know, that was just like the, the squaw mentality out here in Tahoe. So, Hey, what's uh so Stokely being such a small brand, you had a lot of success on Stokely, Odomot's on Stokely. I mean, it's a really small team. Like how do you guys compete with the big powerhouses like Atomic? Uh, Stokely has one huge advantage and they have one huge disadvantage. The advantage is they can react very quickly. And uh, if you know what you want, they build skis within a short amount of time, faster, quicker than maybe a big company who is moving a little bit slower. The big disadvantage is if you only have one or two racers, you don't have lots of data. You only have the feedback of one or two different persons. You need to have precise feedback. Plus you need a, a feedback that tells you exactly what to change in a new ski. And if you have a person like that with a great sensation under their feet and the knowledge what to change, then you're, it's a win-win situation. But if you have one good racer who doesn't know about the the setup or anything then you're screwed then it's a huge disadvantage wind produces a sophisticated line of ski and snowboard waxes for use by skiers riders racers and shops the current wind snow wax formulations have come from over 50 years of progressive blend reformulation and on slope and in lab testing this has been in conjunction with the feedback of some of the world's top ski and snowboard athletes Athletes who know real speed, like Kitzbühel champ Darren Rolfs and 2019 Birds of Prey GS champion Tommy Ford. When no longer sells any products containing fluorocarbon compounds and instead utilizes natural, plant-derived and or biodegradable additives that substantially increase the overall eco-friendliness of the Wend Snow Wax product line. Give Wend a follow on Instagram at Wend Waxworks and purchase your Wend products at wendperformance.com. And don't forget to use the code ADH20 for 20% off your purchase. I'm going to set Marco uh, Buchel, uh, Buxi, uh 2005. I want to hear about this run, whether you knew you were fast, do you remember anything about it? Um, you won by two hundies over Volkoffer and a couple tenths over Eric Gay. Let me just remind Darren, you were 19th and Marco, a great race at 37th. We won't go there, but Booksy, did you know you were fast? Take us through that run. 
Uh, it started early in the morning when I rode up the uh, gondola to the start. And, uh, one of the tourists in the gondola looked at me and he asked me my name. And I said, Marco Büchli from Liechtenstein. And he said, well, you are going to win. And I said, why is that? <laughs> and he said, well, last year I rode up the same gondola with Max Raufer and he won. So basically, if I ride it up with him, so I will win. <laughs> I thought that's funny. Uh, as we, uh, the guys who raced that race remember probably, it was a pretty windy day and they lowered the start to the super G start. And um, we skipped the camel jumps on that day. So I went out to start and had a, a top grade top section. We skipped the, the camel jumps. We rode uh, around it because it was so windy. They were scared that you might flip in the air. And I had a, a really good chestnut section. And, and if you know uh, downhill is shorter, you are not allowed to make mistakes. You have to give it 100%, go full throttle, and make no mistakes whatsoever. Otherwise, you are thrown out the back. And I came down, and as I cleared Cheslat, I knew this is freaking good. I knew. And I came around that corner into the last section down to the finish area. And on top, I saw the... Uh, 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 one of the advertisements, I think it was Audi or something, and it was blowing from the wind in the right direction. So I knew I had wind from behind and I came down and I thought to myself, well, I did my job and I think this was freaking good and I had the wind on my side, but I had no idea because, you know, sometimes you come down thinking you're the winner and you lose three seconds. Uh, it happened before as well. So I turn around and I saw that green bib, uh, the green rank number one, and I just freaked out. And afterwards, standing down there waiting one racer after another, that was harsh. And Valkover, he came really close, 200 of a second. But uh, in the end, I think they they stopped the race after 40 races, and then they just uh, announced me as a winner. And I felt like well, it's a good day. Luke, how was the how was the party? You talked about. You want to like celebrate those wins? What happened there after the Val Gardano win? Oh six, or that was <laughs> December oh five. But yeah, yeah. The fun thing was I, uh, I didn't, I didn't do the GS the next day. I drove back home, and uh, my wife organized a music band and friends, and I got home, and musicians out on the street it was winter time and they were music making outside the house and a lot of booze so <laughs> headache next day headache. Headache. one thing we haven't talked about uh, i think that at Magardena they have the best like buffet at the at the top lodge and i remember watching guys you know they had donuts and cheese and <laughs> And all sorts of good things. And I remember watching like Manny eat like three donuts before his run one year. Do you remember on that day in 2005, did you go for the donuts or did, were you too nervous? To eat or you I do? was probably too nervous to eat anything. <laughs> I think it's interesting that every race is different what you remember. And uh, Bormio, I remember two things. Most of the, I was just, in the zone but i remember two things wind at my chest and i said oh my god i'm getting blasted i gotta get low and at the final jump um it was all ice but there was a a, a cat must have gone through and i landed 
in front of the tracks and you could only see the tracks because it was glare ice except for the cat. So even though I was mistaken, I'm like, oh my God, I landed 30 feet before everyone else. I must be going super slow. Those two things were both wrong because I ended up winning the, the medal, but it's amazing that I don't remember the skiing, but I remember the wind and the fact that, uh-oh, I'm going really slow. Marco or AJ or Darren, other things, pick a race. Do you have something where you uh, remembered that was just off the wall? You know, I, I only won one time in, in Chamonix and uh, I had one big mistake at the top, which I always kind of remember um, that after that, I just knew I had to have no mistakes. And I think that kind of propelled me to, to ski in really well for the rest of it. And I, yeah, quite honestly, don't remember much of the run other than coming through the finish and just being like, I think that was good. And, and then waiting, waiting in the leader's box and just hoping. Yeah, I don't remember a whole lot about, about any of my runs, to be honest. I mean, I remember more than anything what I felt at the finish line as I crossed. Did I have a good run or not? And, you know, and then, of course, your reaction to looking up at the timing board to see. But my... Um, approach to ski racing always was just to switch off up here. And, and so that, you know, for me, I don't remember a whole lot about, about too many of the runs I ever took. In Bormio, um, I had a really fast training run. And that was the time when if you won the train run, you start 30th and you wouldn't ever try and like you'd sandbag a little bit if you're, if you're feeling good and try and kill some speed. I actually can stood up at the bottom and I still won. And so I was starting 30th and the next day, specifically the Austrian coaches on the hill said, uh, yeah, you blew it. You blew your chance you know, to compete and win today because you're starting 30th. You know, you're in the wrong place. It starts to be dark and can be even more nasty. I'm like, doesn't matter where I start today, guys. This is mine still. And uh, I, I was able to come out and win that race. And I think it's um, that really sticks in my head as something. But like, during these like races, there's one time I actually remember hearing on the loudspeaker going off sidelong jump, sidelong sprung, landing, and you you go to that uh, the intermediate timer, and there's a speaker right there, and I could hear the announcer going crazy, and I figured like okay, like I must be fast, and I gotta keep putting it down, you know, from here to the finish, and and um, it wasn't the year I won, but it was it was still I was second that year behind Everharder. But uh, it was just pretty amazing to have those kind of moments that just pop out at you. All right. So we got to get down to the picks. I want to do a shout out to AJ. AJ, I think everybody was close last week with um, Kilde and Odermott, but you won with your pick of Kilde, Foyt, Odermott. So you had two with Kilde winning. So congratulations to AJ. I think you've won every one. So you're, you're winning by a million. Um, just to set this up, think about your top three, or at least give me who you think will go well at Valgardena. Kilda and Odermott, they've had four speed races, two uh, downhills, two um, Super Gs. And if you add up all the times, it comes down to about seven minutes, seven plus minutes of racing. And they have been uh, apart by only 0.5, like a half second over seven minutes, which is crazy. So... Um, and another thing to think about is like, where are the Austrians in downhill, which is fine by me. So, uh, I'm not going to go first. Cause I took everybody's, um, picks who wants to go first and, uh, pick our top three, or at least who's going to be in the top five. I, I still put Kilde on top because Norwegians and Valgardena, 
that's love at first sight, obviously. Then I would love to pick an American, but technically they're not skiing that well right now. So on second place, I put uh, um, Meyer. Yep. And in third place, I put Fights. Nice. Yes. No Odermatt, which is interesting. No Odermatt, not on that course. But uh, it can be proven wrong, but I don't put him, I don't pick him. Marco? I've uh, I've started off the season picking some underdogs, and then I think I'm going to stay on that trend by going with some guys who've been in the tank at the start of the season here. Dominic Paris has not had a great start, and uh, Bryce Bennett has had a pretty atrocious start. He won here last year, so I think he's going to be fighting to get back on the horse. So I'm going to go with Dominic for the win, Bryce second, and uh, I think killed the third because he's pretty quick. Next. Yeah, do it. I'm waiting. I'm going last. Oh, man. Well, you know, the guys that really ski the train well and can carry some freight down this hill, uh, you know, I, I don't want to uh, copy Marco, but Dominic talking to him in uh, Beaver Creek, he's been, he was really frustrated last couple of races and he was looking forward to Valgardena. I think Dominic, I'm going to go with him. And um, I like, uh, I mean, Creekmeyer, I like that guy on this course. He's got a good touch. He's fast. So I'm going to go with Creekmeyer second. And then um, I'm going to, I'm going to bring back Bryce. I mean, I got to bring American to the table and he's got good feelings there. And he switched from having a horrible start last year to winning Valgardena. And I'm just counting on him to do the same thing. Nice. Uh, I'm going to go kill the Odermott for the third race in a row or fifth race in a row, whatever. Uh, kill that because he's just dominant on this course. I think uh, Booksy, I think Odermott um, is going to figure something out. He's just so long in the leg. I mean, he has such an advantage. And then I'm going to go RCS because, yeah, I'd like to go with Bennett, but I just can't see him making that big a change. I'd like to, but RCS with his uh, length in the leg and he's tall and he's good and he's kind of under the radar right now. Hopefully uh, his rep will figure it out. So I'm putting our RCS third. All right, AJ. All right. You guys probably don't remember this, but Valgardena used to always be really good to the Canadians and Crawford is teed up right now. So I'm going Crawford. Uh, I'm going RCS because I think he's had enough of the mediocre results and he's got a little confidence coming out of Beaver Creek. And my last one's Creekmeyer. I have to agree with a couple of you guys on him. I think he's teed up as well, but uh, look out for the Canadians. I like that pick. Good choice. Good choice. Yep. AJ is on fire. Thanks for watching and listening to our American Downhiller podcast. For AJ, Darren, Marco, and Marco Buchel, thanks for listening. Marco, all the way from Liechtenstein, thanks for sharing some knowledge and some stories with us. Coming up soon, everybody's favorite Sufferfest DH, Bormio. Ski fast, take chances. Doug Lewis here. If you are a U12, U14, or U16, Elite Team Fitness Camps are for you. This is not your average fitness camp as we teach the vital skills of sports psychology and sports nutrition, along with tough, challenging workouts. You will leave camp with more power, strength, and agility, with a deeper understanding about nutrition, and with the mental skills of confidence, focus, and pushing limits, which will take you to the next level. 
over our 30 years, we have coached Olympic champions, World Cup stars, NCAA champions, including US ski teamers, Michaela Schifrin, Lauren Masuga, Alice Merriweather, Jimmy Krupka, Grace Henderson, and Sammy Worthington. And finally, although we push our limits to the edge, we have a ton of fun. We are holding two week-long sessions this July at the Killington Mountain School. Find all the info at EliteTeam.com.